Welcome, Wheatland family and friends. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. I am Luke LaDuc, senior pastor here at Wheatland, and I am joined weekly by our co-host, Dr. Dan Spanger, professor of history and chair of the Arts and Sciences Department at Lancaster Bible College. As a professor of history, Dan is a bright mind and engaging lecturer, and as an elder here to our Wheatland family, Dan has a warm heart for the gospel of Jesus and our life together as the body of Christ. And I am thrilled to dig more deeply into the scriptures with him each week as we tackle questions, explore connections, and generally unpack the sermon from the previous Sunday. Along the way, we'll take a few side streets, a winding road or two, but we'll never be quite so lost that you won't enjoy the scenery. Thanks for coming along. Welcome, Wheatland. This is Cross Reference. Uh, that's something we started new, by the way, when you were born. I don't know if you knew that, but we started, yeah. it started the new, the new sort of intro. I don't know if Keith's putting any music behind it, but it's now, you know, this is cross-reference. I, wow. I think I'm, we're professionalizing, we're stepping up the game a little bit. Boy, I can miss one week and everything's okay, <laughs> but I'm out of the pulpit. We waited till you left, quite frankly. We uh, wanted you out of the picture. Wholesale changes. Yeah. So now, now I'm your host, yes. Dan Spanger, um, and this is, this is cross-reference. Which I'm not. Well, I'm not sure that'll land permanently, but it feels more like a radio show now. Well, I like it. I like. I like a little bit of your uh, Disney voice as we talk right. about. <laughs> Sorry, I gotta gotta yeah. bring that out once in a while. I'll start doing it in different Disney characters just to upset the pastor. <laughs> exactly. If I can. Um, this was uh, Pastor Luke. You were moving into the Tower of Babel, which seems, mm-hmm. I think, for a lot of people, like a break. And I, it always feels like you got this flood story, and then that ends, and then all, then you got yeah. some politics stuff happening, and you get this tower thing, and then. Then we get on with the real story of the Bible right after that. But um, you're, yeah. you're packing in something a little larger here about how this fits in the larger, like this is a continuation of the narrative of what God has been telling Moses from the creation up till now. Yeah. Um, and I and we'll get into these contact pieces, but I think one of the things you had mentioned uh, to me was just that this is now getting a, to be a lot to manage. You're, you're having, you want to manage the narrative for, for us to help us understand mm-hmm. that, but then you've got these more specific theological points to make about yeah. how we're starting to move. You're starting to see this trend of humanity move into autonomy mm. and how that relates to us. So did you, yeah. did you think you landed all of those planes the way you wanted to on Sunday? Oh, never, never, <laughs> never, never. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're right. So <clears throat> Genesis one through 11 in my uh, hopes and in my aspirations, <laughs> uh, I was hoping that what we would have at the end of this is uh, a new way to reevaluate who we are, where we are in our moment, and and reflect on. So one of the buzzwords over the last twenty months or so has been unprecedented, and that that sort of thing. And there and there have been. I mean, I'm not taking uh, taking any shots at the idea that uh, we should have you know, handled everything that we've had, like uh, old hat. But um, the other thing I wanted us to see is, um, is to go back to Genesis 1 through 11, as I've said a couple of times here, and really see what we might discover 
about humanity itself that hasn't changed all that much. And I think for me, I felt it sort of drilled down deeper into my soul in a new way uh, that Genesis 1 through 11, as God is delivering his people from Egypt, he's, he's giving them this picture of who they are and how they will struggle and how God will respond in the middle of it. And so, yeah, um, but did I land all those planes? Uh, no, the tower, if the tower is not the Tower of Babel, but it's the uh, air traffic control tower. Uh, <laughs> she wasn't waving you in. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we got it. We, we got all those planes on the ground successfully. Well, but you know, you're, but, you're talking about it as a bit of prophetic work. Yeah. You know, that, that the text is not, and this is, that's, again, it's just helpful for me to say that, you know, this, we can see this as, as history. Oh, this is mm-hmm. what happened back then. We can see it as theology. Oh, this is teaching us about God, which is true. But I think what you're saying is there's something prophetic here that it's actually calling yeah. us out mm-hmm. where, where we do this and mm-hmm. we're supposed to see ourselves in it. And I know right. that's a lot to do when you're trying to unpack yeah. all, all these other pieces yeah. to get at that, which we might call application. I don't think. Right. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, I felt like if you asked me what, what do you wish you'd have had more time with uh, here at the end? It would have been really unpacking, okay, if this movement eastward means something theologically, yeah, yeah. how do we how do we sit with our own hearts and and look at the places where um, we have grown in our autonomy or yeah. or we're bent towards autonomy? Where are the places that we feel that not just, in the culture around us, but in our own lives as the church, where are places that we struggle to? So that's, but, you know, that's the ongoing work of pastoral ministry. And so, you know, we'll, we'll get to do that. Uh, and one uh, sermon does it all. Right, right. So, um, but this idea of Babel, and maybe this is something that you're, you were, I think you, you were getting at and tying Babel to Babylon and even off into, mm. into the end of, of, of the New Testament. Right. Yeah. So there's this, there is this continuity in there um that babel always represents this human desire to well, i think you, you had said in our conversation but creating our own spaces and our own sacred spaces and mm-hmm. trying to create our own gardens and that which i which i think is the fruit i don't i, I see yeah. continuity there yeah and i think for me i mean i honestly after last week's study mm-hmm. i'm i'm mystified as to why the translators of our english um translations use Babel in chapter 10 and chapter 11 rather than Babylon because I'm like come on it would be so much more helpful if you'd have just told us this is Babylon from the beginning and then all of us who've spent all of the uh you know the 70s and 80s and 90s in Revelation uh, with with Babylon (laughs) we would have known what's going on here um but But now now that's tricky because I I think when you said that it it took me for a minute because I'm thinking but Babylon is is a specific city Mm-hmm. an empire that itself mm-hmm. falls mm-hmm. um so it seems like you've got almost two things going on babylon is this one event that happens with the right. rise of this power but it's also this longer story about every right. kingdom that yeah. sets itself against christ yeah um, it, it are, are you saying that the name of babylon as the city that over that conquers um was they are they the ones that conquered judah and i should know this. yeah right yeah it's um, the southern kingdom that they yeah, it, are, yeah. is, is that one taking that name on or are we just looking at a historical happenstance that this group called themselves babylon or is that is that in your and you're saying that's all all babel since nimrod mm, yeah i 
I don't know that I, at this point, could actually answer that um, authoritatively. But I think certainly- answer unauthoritatively. Yeah, well, my unauthoritative <laughs> answer is, uh, it's in fits and starts, I think, okay. in ancient history, it's generally the same place, Mesopotamia, uh -huh. you know, all of that. But I, I think what's interesting for me is just the, the imagery that um, Babylon will always, even after it's not a political powerhouse, like even after Rome, right. Rome isn't Rome for the for uh, yeah. Jews, it's the new Babylon. Right. Right. You might think of it in the same way uh, that we use Nazi today. And I, I don't okay. I, just it, the arch enemy in a sense. Like, okay, that was World War II. We don't have uh, a lot of German enemies at this point. But if you want to call somebody an arch enemy, whatever, you'll, you'll throw that label out. And I think that's probably how Babylon works, in, okay. in, especially in the life of Israel in literature. So there's heavy cultural references here. But then yeah. there's... Yeah, Maybe spiritual and theological references. If you're talking about thus human cities that set themselves up, this becomes more applicable then, because we're not just looking at the ancient heritage of the right. city of Babylon, looking right. forward to let's say the, you know, the collapse of Judah, but mm -hmm. we're looking at this long human story, mm -hmm. which and that, that ties into Revelation really, really well. And I, and I think mm -hmm. you go back and see Babylon as just that one weird, that one power in the ancient Near East. Misses yeah. All of that. yeah, right. It, I mean, it is that, but it, the the scriptures certainly. Uh, and I think how it comes up here in Genesis 11, I think it's this, it's, it's giving us a heads up in a sense to say, okay, I'm setting for you the protagonists and, and I'm setting out for you the players and okay, they might not be actually Babylon proper under Nimrod, but these yeah, cities yeah. that will exalt themselves against you are doing what's going on here in a yeah. sense. And that, there's, there's something here about Genesis that really tells us to re-see the history of the world differently. Mm. That, you know, there's always this tendency. I mean, I think like ancient Samaria and Babylon, we all, we all, we talk about all these as if they're the real players, but the, the at least Genesis three forward says there's really only two major players, the kingdom of this world mm -hmm. and the kingdom of our Christ. Mm -hmm. And so they'll, yeah. they'll all do their own thing, but ultimately that's the story. And this, I keep going back to that, that quote that you brought up from. Um, yeah. Shoff. Yeah. Shoff. This idea that that's the actual story in all the mm -hmm. world. And if yeah. we take Genesis seriously, that has to be the, the narrative. That yeah. we, we have to see that's yeah. the actual history of the world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think that's what's been so helpful about uh, as we sort of tying up this series is a theological view of these 11 chapters to like approach yeah, these yeah. and say, what are the theological foundations that are being laid down for God's people and for us right. that we need to really be clued into? And that, I think, is a huge, a huge paradigm for us to grasp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and so the... Um part of the theological piece that you've, you've built in here, and I, there were two of these, and I, I sort of got them. Uh, I say sort of got them, because I, I, I think I understood what you're saying, but as we've been talking, maybe it's become a little clearer, is this distinction between a city and a tower. Yeah. That you seem, now, there, there seem to be two ambitions in the heart of man that seems to come out of this story. One is a city and one is a tower. And yeah. city, I think most of us have seen the tower as a city, but you're saying actually the city is one ambition and the tower represents a related but second second ambition. 
And maybe you can clear that yeah. up. What are these two pieces? Yeah. I, so I had, I think what struck me about this and what brought me to it was uh, a thing I read in John Walton, number one, um, mm -hmm. in his commentary on Genesis, where I, and, and again, I came into this knew, knowing and having read before that this is a ziggurat, you know, that idea. I had, I had that in my head. Um, what filled it out for me was um, the idea, the way that the text in verse four separates this city and a tower. Come, yeah. let us build a city and a tower. And I, I had just never thought of this episode as a city. I, I had never thought of Babel as a city. I had only thought of it as a tower. In fact, I think I've seen like artistic representations <laughs> like from medieval world or somewhere where it's actually just a, the city itself is it's a, a tower. tower. Yeah. Yeah, I have and, that and I, yeah. And I had that in my head and, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to go. Yeah, no, but um, as I got to reading more about um, the actual history of how ziggurats functioned in, um, in these, in ancient Mesopotamia, um, and, and especially when I realized that they had almost no, in, in what we have in the ancient Mesopotamian literature, John Walton says that there is never anything that the, uh, humans do with a ziggurat mm -hmm. other than yeah, build right, it right. and consecrate it but there's never any rites that are performed on it or with it. There are no sort of like races up to the top and back down to see who gets a, a prize. That's something. A Keith Rocky moments. Yeah. I, moments like, can't, can't you see Keith Winder organizing some, some little uh, to the top run. of the ziggurat and back. Let's yeah, do the ziggurat exactly. run. Yeah. The ziggurat run. Maybe he, he might come up with that for next the ziggurat. year. Now that we've, yeah, <laughs> exactly. A, a portmanteau uh, now the ziggurat, but um. So, so that was interesting to me. And then when I came back to the text and saw city and a tower, it was like, okay, well, maybe something else is going on here because the, in, in the other, um, in all of their archeological uncoverings, the, I think I mentioned this in the sermon that the ziggurat was right next to the temple whatever temple was built in yeah, these yeah. cities, it, it, it was right adjacent to it. And so they had some relationship, but not from the human side. It was, it was all sort of this conceptual, the gods come and this is how yeah, they, yeah. They, they inhabit their space. But then when I went back to chapter 10 and was trying to work through, because, you know, we did skip chapter 10 in, in all of <laughs> noticed this. that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, when I saw it, that verse that says N Babel was the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom, and then you get city. Uh, so those are the things that put it together to say, I think, I think there's something helpful to pull these two apart for a minute. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that, that's sort of where I wished I'd had a different title. Because you've been, you've been talking about this, <clears throat> this idea of order, and of course, you see after the, you know, after Cain, you know, the order just just splinters apart everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that that's a really interesting phrase that that the Moses uses with the time of Noah, that that the intention of every man's heart was evil. 
So there's a very individual broken, disordered thing. And then you've got man now creating this new order. And I think that falls in line that a city, and this is one thing I think we moderns don't understand cities just with place with big buildings, but at the mm-hmm. ancient period, cities were the only places where you had resources and defense. I think you talked about walls mm-hmm, and defense mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and you would have had, you know, food supply, command laws, like outside the city in the ancient time, there was no laws. It was a barbaric right. Right. wildland. Right. So there's a, there's a lot to this order that comes in the city um, that, that would have meant something a great deal to them. Yeah, like there is no city without uh, a government in a sense. There is, right, right. I mean, it may not be the form of government that we're familiar with, but yeah. there were very, in order for something like that to rise up out of the plain of Shinar, right. uh, you had to have some pretty organized and forceful and and right. uh, strict, uh, I don't know what you would call it, um, just uh, culture, laws. Yeah, you'd have to have laws of sort, structure, and order. order. Yeah, yeah exactly. Order. And I think to me, that's an interesting play on the whole story right. of how the world comes into being. Right. right. Um, it's, it's that order thing. Um, but, and in a sense, I think that's what makes Genesis 1 through 11 so interesting, is that man is doing exactly what he was created to right. do. Right. He is bringing right. order to the chaos. Like right. to think that these guys could show up on the plain of Shinar where there are no rocks to build buildings to develop a kiln fired brick. Right, right, right. I mean, this is this That's tremendous. This is filling out the cultural mandate that God had intended them with one small problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one smallish, largish. Yeah, one smallish, largish problem that God is not part of the equation as the authority and the king. And so that that being one part, and then this other part, which you, you made a really interesting statement that I guess is clear in the text, but it was nice that you pulled it out, was that then, so that's the city part, and then this tower part, which, yeah, is interesting. You don't you don't actually perform any rites on it whatsoever. Yeah. It's, but but it sacralizes, right? It sacralizes, mm-hmm. I think you had said something along the lines of it, 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 it makes the space a sacred space. It, right. So it, humanity is not just interested in order, we're also interested in, in meaning and how do yeah. we sacralize yeah. us into being something. Yeah, there's a sense that you could think of it as, uh, well, I I think for me, it was tied in towards that eastward eastward movement, like the fact that they wanted it, they needed a place to be sacred, uh, a sacred space, sort of for me fit with that whole theme of at every major juncture in the story, somehow Moses is dropping a hint about there's an eastward movement going on here. And, and for me, it's like, okay, I, I see what's going. I, and again, John Walton gave some of these ideas. It's not like I read all this and came up with this, but it, with with his stuff in the background, you can really see how they come to this plane and they decide this is where we're going to build it. But wait a minute, we're still east. Oh, well, we can fix that. We'll we'll build a ziggurat and call it sacred space because right. the gods will come down. You know, that sort of idea, which yeah. to me is is really um, telling, I think, about the way in which humanity builds civilization and society mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. forward. Like that is. To me, that's the essence of the kingdom of man. That is the essence of Babylon, yeah. in a sense. And that's true. I, I, 
I have tried to make this, I've tried to make this point teaching history students is that we, you know, the moderns really want to make religion look like this really weird outcast, you know, to any society. Here you build society, and I guess we don't know what to do with thunder, so I guess we'll invent mm -hmm. the gods. It's entirely the wrong way to look at it. There's, there's always been this ultimate meaning, even in a materialist sense, you're going to find some gods, evolution, human history, society, something, something, something. But something has to sacralize it and make it ultimately meaningful. There's right. humans are, as Calvin said, you know, idle factories. We have no choice but to create something to worship. Right, right. Right. And I and I think you're you're right to say you don't have the city without the tower. And then the tower becomes this place that makes this the ultimate right. ultimate. And, and and there's another point in here, Luke. I don't mean to jump off topic with no. you, but the the idea too that you're seeing a declension from what what would have made something sacred before was God, who is this. Mm -hmm transcendent being and now you've got something that's that's morphed really badly we use the word gods here but right. we're not dealing with something that's that's a, that's god so mm -mm. You, and you and you talked about this in one way that there's been some shift in the way that people see the gods um yeah. somehow the, the humans are now determining who the gods are but either way i think that the point is there's some declension going on here that 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 god is no longer he who calls us to himself but now we call the gods to ourselves right yeah and i think i i probably oversold it a little bit in the sermon which um preachers are famous for doing <laughs> in time and memorial but um i i i was trying to look back here through my manuscript um but just because it's in the manuscript doesn't mean that's actually what i said anyway but uh, i was I was trying to make the point that this is a, a, a huge shift. Um, I, one scholar I read said this is beyond mere idolatry, that this, this is, um, maybe it's, let, let me see here. Yeah, it's beyond mere idolatry. Um, there's a fundamental shift in the way that the people viewed the gods. And um, I, I would probably want to soften that a bit at, because I was making the point that, well, before the humans worked for the gods and now the gods work for the humans, that may be, um, that's probably an oversell. I don't think there's this hard and fast line that, okay, now here at Babel, everything's different. But I do think what is fundamentally different here is that at Babel and with this tower, what you do see is the city of man now is um, autonomous over the sacred space anyway. So however they relate to the gods, maybe they're happy to keep up that same uh, a version of that former relationship, but they get to determine, in a sense, where and when that takes place in a new way, because they've moved east from the presence of Yahweh. And to me, I think that's a really powerful image of what actually happens in the kingdom of man as opposed to the kingdom of God. And I think it's a, a really compelling image of exactly how Israel herself, as she's being brought out and goes out and goes back to settle Canaan, that will be the temptation that she will face at every point. I think there's there's something uh, I've always think it was like a mosaic revolution, like something something radical shifts with Moses only because something initially radically shifted away from mm -hmm. God was when he revealed himself to what these gods become. And, and I don't know if this is too hokey to say, but you know, scriptures say that man's made in God's image. And then in, in the sort of polytheism, we see man making the gods in their mm -hmm. image. So, mm -hmm. you know, they, they just become like us. Oh, we're hungry. They're hungry. Uh, they yeah. need a rest. We need a rest. Right. Oh, they, they must need a rest. Right. <laughs> really mm -hmm. interesting how that. Mm -hmm that becomes the way the gods are perceived um, rather than 
this almighty Yahweh who teaches us how to act, we in sense set up yeah. how the gods are supposed to behave, um, the kind yeah. of things that they need from us, um, the kind of things that make us important. Yeah. You know, we provide a bed, I guess, at the top of the ziggurat, which is nice right. to know. I don't have yeah. one at the top of my stairs. Yeah, I know. You should have a talk to Tara about getting a little to talk about that. Especially yeah, I mean, as you continue to age. I mean, you're aging, <laughs> Thanks. Dan. You, you are aging. Some topics I thought were in third rails around here, Luke, but apparently not. But um, yeah, I think one of the things that I didn't, um, well, I may have mentioned it, but uh, one of the things that I thought was really helpful in, in the narrative that sort of kept coming back to me was the way in which this switch um, continues, you see it, if, okay, if this is a switch that gets flipped in regards to sacred space, mm -hmm. then you would anticipate it seeing it further ahead in Israel's story. And I think that's exactly what you do see going along mm -hmm. in Israel's story. So when, when they divide, when the kingdoms divide, um, what happens? Uh, they set up their, uh, you know, everybody has to sacralize is a word that you used. I don't know if that's actually a word, but I like that's saying That's a word. It. I'm sacralize, sacralize their space. So they build a, and, and they, they build a, 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 a little, um, image. Yeah. yeah the right. calf there in, um, Israel in the wilderness, in her wanderings, before Moses, uh, as Moses is bringing the law to him, they build a calf. And again, right. you and I have talked about the idea that this isn't, um, it's not as crazy as we think it is, but they're, they're trying to make their space sacred. And, yeah. and it's an interesting, it, we, we do see this play out more and more. Like, right. the Babylonians here are not just off the rail crazy, in other words, with this whole cigarette concept. I, I would have liked to have said that a little more on on well that, that's helpful because we we do we do want to say, you know, well, they're tempted in ways that we just we're we're far smarter than that. We're mm -hmm. not going to go back and build a ziggurat. Right. But then we build all kinds of idols to the gods that we think give us meaning, whether that's and I yeah. think you talk about individualism and kind of the kind of things that we sacralize in our own way, our own spaces around ultimate values of who we are and, and what we'll sacrifice to achieve rather than in service to yeah. Christ. And I, yeah. I think going back to your point of continuity, that there are these continuities from the beginning with this idea of Babel and the autonomy of man. I think we're reading this right. We have to see ourselves somehow in this. We can't say, mm -hmm. oh, they build calves. We're not that nuts. You know, right. we, we've right. actually got our own idols that are probably right. just as, well, they would have thought we're probably even crazier yeah. <laughs> what I wanted to also talk about, but I am not smart enough to do this, but something I feel an itch that I am not competent to scratch, if that makes sense. <laughs> the image and will what, let go, but yes, let's return yeah. for anyway. But, but the itch that I would want to scratch is I kept dropping this idea about mind bending technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think there's something in here about the role that technology plays mm. in human hubris and its yeah. relationship to the creator yeah. and, and how autonomy makes technology and technological advancement. Um, it pulls it away from out from under the authority of God right. and, and um, taking dominion. 
and it turns it into autonomy kingdom building. And I, I don't know. I'm not, you Sounds know, like Wendell Berry. We're going to yeah, get Wendell Berry and some Marshall McLuhan. Yeah, there are brilliant guys like McLuhan and, and uh, Jacques Ellul, the French, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Frenchman, and um, of course, our Neil Postman and yeah, yeah, yeah. Lo lots of guys who have talked about this. And that's not necessarily my, my depth of reading or anything like that, although I've dabbled. Um, but I do think that's that it's interesting to me that the minute you see this leap in technological advancement it 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 is it is towards uh human autonomy mm -hmm. it's used for human autonomy rather than kingdom the kingdom of god extending and expanding one of the beautiful pieces of that was the statement you made that you know here you have humanity building up as high as it can get and, and even at its its most you know, one mm. God still has to come all the way. Down. Right, okay. right. Yeah, a, a couple of commentators. Was, Moses is snickering when he writes that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I, I think we don't, we don't, we don't give, we don't give, uh, we rarely give these authors the credit they deserve for the masterpiece <laughs> right, that right, they have yeah. turned out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's just masterful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I think that, that this is a, this is a, this is a, um, condemnation of all the idolatry that I'm sure Moses is seeing around him. And, and, you know, if you're, again, we're trying to put it back in the moment that Moses is writing this, you know, to look at Egypt and imagine that it's so low, all their power and a thing of ziggurats, you know, pyramids. Yeah. And oh yeah. All this incredible construction. And then God yeah. has to go, man, that is so, that looks so big. That looks so small from up here, but let's go take a look. Right. And then God's response to confuse their language. <laughs> Yeah. What a brain scramble that would be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to think yeah. about, we have come up with this mind bend. I keep saying mind bend. This technology. Yeah. We've come up with this amazing technology. Revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, revolutionary technology of the kiln-fired brick. And God comes down, and He doesn't stomp out their kilns, and He doesn't yeah, yeah, do that. Yeah. He He goes to the place that they ought to be using the facilities He's given them for worship and praise. And he just scrambles it a little bit. And all of a sudden, the whole project grinds to a halt. I mean, to me, that's that's a beautiful imagery of the sovereignty of the creator um, who created lips and tongues to praise him and fellowship with him and um, comes down. And in a moment, just one bit of scrambling and the whole project's done. Yeah, and, and, and not stopping. I think you make this point. It, it's a it's a gracious judgment in one sense. It doesn't stop mm -hmm. human building. Um, it right. Stop human genius, but it does say, you know, to some degree, your your genius is not meant to replace my right. commandments. <laughs> exactly. And and that and I know that and you didn't really get into this. Although I know this is part of that conversation is that you know God had told them to 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 expand. That, mm -hmm. that comes right to Noah again, that same, that yeah. same commandment. And here again, they're, they're not doing that. So is that, yeah. is that in your mind playing a central role in the judgment? It is. It is. But, you know, I read a couple of guys. I, I think this is just an interesting side note. I mean, I went into it thinking, okay, here's why God comes in judging right. them. Because God told them to fill the earth right. and, and they're balling up on one point. And so now God is going to come and he's going to disperse them because that's in the end. The judgment is that the, the city gets left alone and they're dispersed. Like the very two things they meant to do are foiled. Right. I had to go uh, some, I read a couple of commentators that said, well, you know, filling the earth didn't necessarily 
mean going out to every corner. It was a population. So I don't know. I kind of backed off of that as well, if they're there and they're building a civilization and they're having babies and whatever they're doing and building, that's still filling the earth. It it doesn't say you had to distribute the population equally over every part. Yeah, you can still be filling the earth from a very dense spot. So I I sort of backed off on that rightly or wrongly, but I do think it's undeniable that what God does is frustrate their plans because they leave off building the city and they are dispersed out into all. And you see how God uses that um, yeah. in a miraculous way um, throughout history. I mean, in a sense, but uh, yeah, with the whole Pentecost and and, and all of that business. But yeah. So what? So if if you had to say when God says, "I want to go down and see what they're doing here," all the interesting Trinitarian mm-hmm. language, which I right right lost, yep. which is a, sort of a strange thing to be yeah. saying in the Old Testament. Same thing as chapter two. You know, right. let us right. make man let in our own image. Right. Yeah. Um, in light of that, do you think that the, the the thing that was built so high that it would reach heaven? What do you think that was a a religious a statement about the religious ambitions and the tower? Or do you think that's something about the human ambitions in the city? Or, yeah. both, or which one do you think that he's, yeah. he's getting? No, at? I wrestled with that a little bit because one of the other things that I would have said coming into, if you just like when I started this series and I knew I was closing this out on Genesis 11, I would have said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to hammer on. I'm going to say, let us make a name for ourselves. Right. And, right. and uh, let's stay here on the plane of Shinar rather than scattering. Um so I, I just explained backing off of the dispersion versus the, but so here's my thing with the name for itself. Um, I think that that is part and parcel to their building the tower. And now they are in some way um, defining what I called sacred space. Mm-hmm. So all of the sudden we are making a name for ourselves with the gods, with, with, with the world and with the gods, because now we can build this and we create a couple of access points. And now all of a sudden we've got our own little Eden right here. You don't, you don't have to worry about that. There's been this eastward progress away from the garden Mm -hmm. because now we're able to build a ziggurat and we've got the gods right here, wherever we want them. And all of a sudden that is religiously. I mean, if, if the kiln fired brick with regards to civilization is a technological advancement to to be able to have the presence of god gods and by that i mean the little g in their mind right to have the a sacred space wherever you decide is is you have made a name for yourself and then of course when you get into genesis 12 what is God doing? It's like, I will make of you a great nation. I will make your name great. It's this play. It's this, I think that's a huge, it's God is undoing that to say, Abram, um, if there's going to be a great nation, if there's going to be a great civilization, I'm going to be the one who builds that, not, not, not right. humanity. Right. Cause I think a lot of people make hay with the statement that, you know, the top of the towers in the heavens, yeah i've heard people say you know the people were going to storm yeah right <laughs> we're, we're going to storm drag the, the gods down or whatever yeah 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 but i you know that th- that maybe is probably if, if we're thinking of this as a ziggurat that built to the mm-hmm. heavens that, that's that he's talking specifically about the religious function of the mm-hmm. tower the job mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. 
but that but that they will it, and this maybe this is what makes sense of that statement is they will be able to do anything they purpose to do well right exactly mm -hmm. which which if you do create if you do recreate the sacred arrangement uh, that it is, then you actually have the loyalty of people. Yeah. Um, thinking of really bad reference here to Conan, the destroyer. Uh, <laughs> and James Earl Jones, who says that's power and power was not strength. Power was loyalty of people that he could make do anything you wanted. Yeah, to do. right. And I, and I think right. there's probably something here that, and, and you see this in history. I mean, the real power mm -hmm. is not the power to shoot a gun or, or a bow. It's power to actually wield humanity. Right. And you can <clears> do that if you say, hey, what we're doing here is in line with the yeah. God. Boy, right. you Drive and and I think this is what we're seeing in the modern. Mm -hmm. age. Said this is this is what history is all about. Is this sort of view of equality or whatever mm -hmm. or whatever we want to say is, and yeah. then people just seem so compelled to support it that right. you can you can you can animate, move, and and mm. incentivize yeah millions of people, which is something that you just could not imagine right in the yeah. period. Um, it makes it makes me think of the proverb: um, "The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord." like mm -hmm. a river of water he turns it whithersoever he mm -hmm. will i, I mm -hmm. okay I, I, that's I some good king james in there yeah I that's my mother <laughs> read me a proverb every single day of my life from, okay <laughs> until i graduated from high school so if you start a proverb in the king james i can probably finish it but all of that thank you mama but the point that i'm getting at here is that power that God says he has over the king, I think what he's doing in that statement is saying, this is what a powerful king does with the people. He has the people's right. heart in his hand right. and he turns them wherever he wants them to go. And God is saying, oh, oh, wait a minute. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. But that's what you're talking about is that power to control the masses and their loyalty and their loves. And um, of course, like you and I have talked about what we want, what what we're looking to develop in our own hearts and in our own uh, congregation is that loyalty to the kingdom of God first. And that that's the sort of thing that uh, is a hallmark of people of the king is that. Yeah, well, let's let's I, I, if you say it that way, you could almost go back to this text here in Genesis 11 and you could you could rewrite it in the sense that you could say something the people um, the people will do nothing will be impossible possible to them because of their obedience to Christ, which I think is mm -hmm. something that Paul actually says, right? Yeah. And in fact, I mean, you know, this this comes up with Jesus with the with the rich young ruler. Well, nothing's impossible for God. Mm -hmm. Nothing will be impossible mm -hmm. for His church. And I think that's when He says things like, "If you have faith like a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain, uh, whether it's mountains or not." It's a political statement that there's nothing if we are obedient to King Jesus, there's nothing He won't be able to do or He won't do in all the world. Um, so that's a that's a neat parallel that you got this right. Story power of the of the people mm -hmm. comes from the loyalty to the yeah. king and how he can animate yeah. them and here that's exactly what we're called to do is be yeah. animated which exactly happens. martyrs yeah. follow king jesus and overthrow oh, yeah. rome in a way that no one could ever have seen coming yeah that that no army could have ever done yeah, yeah. and and i think that goes back to um somebody was saying you kept saying nimrod you said nimrod so much it made me laugh or i, I was having a conversation um Anyway, but the point is that um, I think you have to take Nimrod as one of these guys who commands. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He was the beginning. I think it even says, I didn't get into this, but in chapter 10, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod in verse 8. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. 
Mm. Um, so this goes back to our discussion on Genesis 6, who these mighty men were. They commanded allegiance, and right. whether it was by right. brute force or by right. charisma and strength, probably mm. all of the above, but he was a mighty man. And this is what he was able to marshal there on the plains of Shinar. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that's help, helpful as we think about what does it mean that God looked down and saw this as something that had to be mm. disrupted. It wasn't just that, you know, humanity thought that they were going to, you know, get into heaven on their own, which I think is one way of reading the Reformation back into sometimes every little corner of the scriptures. Yeah. But certainly this idea that humanity has found a, king, a very effective king and a very effective political structure, yeah. which could command the loyalty of all people. And that, that, yeah. that's a little frightening. If you think about the power Nimrod has, yes, that that he could unify all the peoples around that political his political ambitions and animate them, there's yeah. nothing they couldn't do at that point. But yeah, including worship Yahweh, <laughs> exactly. And and I think this goes to um, Israel's longing for a king that we keep hinting at and talking about mm -hmm. to be like the other nations, and it's not just because oh, well, we want to be like the Joneses or, well, not right. the Joneses, but the Babylonians or the, it's, it's that, that is a powerful, to have a person uh, who is mighty in spirit and in power and in charisma and a mighty man, that is a powerful tool of protection and safety and mobilization and government, blah, blah, blah. So of course, um, of course, that would be a desire. Right. Now, I have a question, and I, I raised this with um, with Keith, because I think we, and it's, you, know, you can't say everything when you say anything. I get that. Yeah. Um, and and you're, I think you're trying to focus on one aspect of this, and that is the, 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 the two loyalties. And this is sort of Augustine mm -hmm. kingdom view. You've got this, you can mm -hmm. build entire cities around love of self or around love of God. Mm. This Babel is the great example of love of self and the kingdom of man and all that sort of thing. But I, I, we do have a, a, a bit of an issue as we, I think, as the church, and we look out at the world and we say, okay, so we got Babel all around us. Let's let's just let's not talk politics right or left. Let's just assume we right. got Babel. Mm -hmm. Babel's doing some good things too, mm -hmm. and you know we don't want to say you know the job of the Christian, the church in Israel is to sort of fight Babel at every at every point. Right. Um, so it's difficult to navigate. How do we how do we go out into this Babel around us and say, yeah, I okay, I. I grant you there's a lot of bad things, but I'm going to continue with the brick building so we can get a wall up because that's a good thing. Right, right. But, I, but at the same time, I'm not committing heart and soul to Babel. And, th and there seems to be some gray area in there as we, as we navigate for our people and how right. we do that. Do we, are we okay? And I know, I know this from the prophets say this, or to, you know, to look out for the well-being of our city and that sort of thing. Right, yeah. So where's that space? I know we want to be critical of what Babel's doing and we don't want to let that go. Yeah. But we, but we have these other responsibilities. How do we personally navigate that? Yeah, I think... Um... For, uh, like one of the things that I'm eager to do for us here is to take seriously the church, is that we're not actually individuals cut loose in, in Babylon, um, and what we really need to do is have our devotions every morning, and that'll be the way that we can navigate Babylon, but actually in the church with King Jesus as the head of the church, we have been given this place that is, um, it does have a king, and it does have a government, and it does have authority, and it does have a family, um, and it does have uh, meals, a meal, and it does have a life, and I think um, 
to me, all, all I'm saying to begin to answer that, Dan, is to yeah. say, if this is where we are, then you, we have to take what it means to be the body of Christ, perhaps a little bit more rigorously and more seriously than we have in the past. Right, right. And that, um, so that church, being a part of the church and being a member in Christ church is not something, it, it, it's, it's not um, sort of a, a member at will kind of right, right. idea, right. but that what we are is we're creating this alternative community as the body of Christ to the kingdom of Babylon. And I, I think we should probably have some hanging gardens, even in our church. Right, right, you know, those are beautiful, right? right. right? We right. can borrow all that. But we have a different ultimate loyalty and allegiance that, that you and I have talked about. So I think yeah. at least the beginning of the answer for me is, okay, if you're struggling to know what it means to live in Babylon as a Christian, one of the first places I think we start to talk is, what does it mean to be a part of the body of Christ? Because that's the first, that's the first place. Right. Um, there, you know, yeah, we're going to have to talk about issues like how much TV do you consume or, right. you know, how much, all of that. But we have to start with this idea that there is something that we belong to that is actually, I think, our first family um, yeah. beyond our big, I mean, even deeper and, uh, stronger than our familial connections. Right, right. That's Christ is, very clear about which that. Which is, well, yeah, exactly. Which is yeah. the church uh, of God in the world. Right. Not the church of God, the denomination, by the way. This is not a, a plug for church <laughs> The of PCA. God. Yeah, no, or the PCA. Yeah, thank you. But for belonging to the body of Christ in the world and yeah, taking yeah. that serious yeah. as a living organism yeah. In the, not just an organization, but an organizi right. organism. Now, the, the picture I have in my head at this point, I'm, I'm a photographer from the old days uh, when you actually had negatives, which ah. if you ever had a color negative, you know, you, you'd look at it and everything is there in the right order and place, but but everything in it is backwards. Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's almost like when I see the city built here in Genesis 11, we're seeing what should have happened. Mm -hmm. And so the church right. really can should own all of these pieces, but we have to invert them. <laughs> The whole yeah, you got to invert the negative to see right. this is about Christ. But all the pieces are there: organization right. and aesthetics yes. and beauty and yes. culture and all that. Exactly. Is. Yeah, technological advancement. Like a kiln-dried brick is qualitatively and objectively better than a sun-dried brick. <laughs> Right, right, I would right. probably rather have a sun-dried tomato than a kiln-dried tomato, <laughs> but a, a sun-dried brick when it is. Comes to brick. Yeah, it's it's qualitatively better. So that goes that I, goes to your point about about the church not being what it what we often take it to be. We've got to see all of these pieces belonging to it because we're mm -hmm. talking about a king, not just an yeah. ethereal community of church right. believers that hang out on Sunday. We're talking about something. Yeah, and and to me, I mean, that this energizes me. Yeah for what we're doing here on this corner. And I'm not right. trying to say that Wheatland is the only church or that Wheatland is the body of Christ and everybody, right. but I'm saying what we're doing here as a group of believers who God has brought together, right. This, it gives me such a, uh, 
an overwhelming desire to continue to pour all of our life and energy and resources into this place because what we're doing actually physically in time and space really matters because we are creating a, a kingdom of sense, the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. We are living yeah. in and out of the kingdom of God in such a way that the more beautiful our space mm -hmm. is, the more sacred our space is in loyalty, loyalty and allegiance to King Jesus, mm -hmm. we have a compelling thing to invite our brothers mm -hmm. and sisters mm -hmm. around us mm -hmm. into where they actually find rest and come out of all of the places of oppression. Like there, there's such this narrative going on I think in the world today that the church is a place of oppression and repression and, right. and, and abuse. And I think, of course, we need to be honest about all of the places where we have mirrored um, Babylon in, in a sense. But when we are giving ourselves to loyalty to King Jesus, we get to be part of this glorious and solid and unshakable kingdom yeah. as hebrews calls it that yeah, actually yeah, yeah. gives life and protection uh and all of that to its people so to me i i can't imagine i mean the church has always been desperately needed in the world i mean that, yeah. that's <laughs> but i i'm excited that we get to do that together on this corner here and to me it's just the great the greatest thing so we could we, say it in inverse way. We could say we're building a tower that reaches down from the heavens. Right. To such a degree that there's nothing that we intend by Christ's heart to do cannot be done. Exactly. Like, beautiful inversion of that whole yeah. story. Right. Yeah. So it's almost as if you took this, if you just changed a couple of details on <laughs> verses 11 or chapter 11, one through nine, you would have the task of the church. Right. 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 That's beautiful. Yeah, it's very holistic. It's it's very, but I think it, it does fit everything about the prophetic word that mm. of, of who Christ will be. You know, someone here said it is really neat in the conversation about social justice. And one of the prophets, I can't remember who said, I'm very nervous. And I may have repeated this, but I'm very nervous about using the word justice to describe any government because that's what God names himself. Mm. And I don't want to use, I can say we, we try to do things right, but we're not taking the name of God to ourselves. And I thought, right that really puts in better perspective what this king is doing. He's, mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's the king who is reordering the right. world and governing, you know, mm -hmm. us and building this kingdom through the church, yeah. which is powerful. Yeah. So Luke, can you give us a sense of where we're, where we're headed? So we're, we're leaving this series in a sense, but not leaving Genesis. Right. Right. We're not leaving Genesis. I'm going to um, grab. Okay. First of all, let me say we are shifting gears. And I think I tried to make this point from primeval history <laughs> to actually places that we can kind of hang dates and and right, right. and times on and in a lot closer um well yeah we can hang dates on abraham and and all of that um so we're moving to genesis 12 and 15 and i i, I and scholars also believe that these are this is a big break just in the way that this text is written in 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 the in the reason for the text um, but now I think we're going to see God begin to um, pull people back towards real sacred space and real communion with himself. It'll never be like Eden was quite yet. Um, that's where the whole of history is moving. But um, that movement begins with Abraham. 
and he's called out and he begins a westward journey um, that we could look at and mm. not to not to beat that uh, beat that analogy too too badly but um, but I am the other thing I want to say is that I'm going into Genesis 12 and 15 and we're doing it during Advent so um, I'm trying to put on those glasses for us as well so as we're we're looking at uh, Sun Sunday sermon is a call and a covenant. So I'm going to take the call of Abraham from Genesis 12, and then I'm going to spend uh, the rest of our time in Genesis 15. So just the first four verses of 12, and then sort of look at chapter 15 as a whole, this covenant that God makes with Abraham. And um, basically what we're going to see is what it looks like to live with a promise that hasn't been fulfilled. And that's sort of the Advent story of waiting. And I think it was um, Karl Barth um, who said this Swiss, anyway, you know who he is. He said, uh, does the church really have any other time than Advent? It's always living in between uh, the times is, yeah. is how he puts it. Waiting the time that Christ has come, but the ultimate time that Christ is coming again. And so the church is always living in this time of tension and waiting for fulfillment. And so uh, I think we're going to look at the life of Abraham and see some of his um, faithfulness and some of his unfaithfulness in waiting in between the times. And I hope we'll sort of, that'll be a window for us into what it looks like for us as we wait. Uh, I, I read this, oh no, it's not what I read, it's what I wrote. So I hate to say, I, I hate to say I wrote this That's interesting true humility thing. right there. <laughs> yeah. But um, this idea that the church, in all of the other season, the, the, the church calendar, the seasons of the church calendar, we're sort of celebrating um, something that has already happened. But with Advent, it's the only time where we're actually looking ahead to that time where Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So yeah. it, this is just a unique time in the life of the church, but it's a, it's a note that I think we often miss. Yeah. Um, Advent often is just looking ahead to Jesus being born, which it is that at one level, sure. but we also have to be thinking about Advent, I think primarily as looking ahead to the coming of the King to put all things right. And um, so I think that's a helpful note that we don't always get to, to play in, right, in, right. The, in the church. Yeah. It ties in nicely with what I think Keith was doing when Noah was waiting. Mm. Uh, or mm -hmm. it, it does seem to be, a, it does seem to be a constant, even, even Adam and Eve have to wait after the death of Abel mm -hmm. uh, for Seth. And, and there's always this, this, this feature to it. So I can see the continuities there. And, yeah. Or will you, will you tie in anything with, with, with Abram's call? I know you're jumping past that out of, out of Haran and all of that, mm -hmm. or, or is that? Yeah, no, I will. I, well, who knows what I'll do, but <laughs> uh, I don't want to make any promises, but for me, the whole thing that we've just done in Genesis one through 11, I think has really been a, a, a wonderful experience for me personally. And so I, I'm having a hard time reading anything without thinking of, I've always been accused of having one sermon that had to do with uh, Genesis two and three. Yeah. So um, 
now it's even worse. Now it's just been expanded <laughs> to Genesis one through eleven. So um, well, it's growing. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, yeah. That's I could one way add. To look at it. Maybe maybe we'll add Genesis twelve. <laughs> Let's not get and, crazy. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, I think there'll be a lot of continuity in between this sort of ma maturing, like that what we talked about with the tree of knowing good and evil, and maturing and wisdom and all of that. Okay. Well, so, good. This is. This is exciting work. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Thank you, Pastor Luke. Um, we'll uh, talk to you next week. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website wheatlandpca.org.